Greetings, everyone. My name is Peter Diager. Welcome to Episode 7 of Y2K and Autobiography, a look back at what really happened during the Y2K years. This episode is a follow-on from Episode 6, which, which was a change problem, Part 1 of 1. We're going to look at this entire thing from a change perspective. If it's a change issue, then, especially during a crisis, then what we have to have is constant, consistent, credible communications. Unless we have that, the message is going to be muddled, confusing, and not accessible to everybody who's listening. In 1993, when I was at Mount Crested Butte, that consultant's camp that I was attending, and the year 2000, Doomsday 2000 article dropped from Computer World, the response from everybody was, someone will fix it by then. And I've taken great delight and care in breaking that statement apart several times in this podcast series. When they say someone will fix it by then, there are a couple of questions in there. Someone, who exactly is going to fix this? Will, why are they going to do it? Why are they going to do it when the listener or the reader isn't deciding to do it? If they say fix, how are we going to fix it? If they say it, someone will fix it by then, what exactly are we going to fix? And when we say by then, well, when exactly are we going to start? The article dropped in 1993, seven years to go before this thing becomes a real problem. Now, as I looked at the responses, listened to the responses that I was getting back from people, it dawned on me that there were two key words there, who and when. And in reality, I'd been chastising people for that phrase for a number of years, yet I was guilty of it. In 1979, I identified the problem. I looked around and there was no one taking care of it. And Hillel, the elders, phrase comes back to me. If not me, who? And if not now, when? Which is another rendition of the someone will fix it by then. Who exactly? When exactly? So I decided to be, to be consistent. I needed to start doing something. What could I do? I'm a nobody. I can't fix it. I don't have the funds to fix it. But what I can do is I can write. I can speak. The article had dropped. It had gained attention. And I could leverage that. So I decided that, for better or worse, I would start writing more about it, start speaking more about it, and see if I could do something, at least to create awareness. And this ties back to why it's a change issue. Both the ADCAR model and the Cotter change model start out with awareness for the ADCAR and create urgency for Cotter. I can do that. I'd started already. So I decided to try even harder. First thing I had to realize is that I'm going to be out there speaking. I need to get paid for that. If I'm going to stop all my other consulting activities, I need to figure out how I can communicate this and still earn a living. Got to earn a living. Got a mortgage to pay. Got a kid's book to put through school. So I set my fee structure at the very, very lowest end of a professional speaker, about $2,500 per engagement. I also decided at the start that I would do pro bono work. If an organization needed me to speak, but they honestly could not afford me, then I would do it for free. And to the best of my knowledge, my recollection, I never once said no to anybody. There were several times someone would phone up and say, Peter, we'd like you to speak, but we can't afford everything. What's your fee? I tell them the fee and they'd never return the call. Can't help you if you don't return the call. So I decided to set it as low as possible, but I also needed a sponsor. 
At the time, going to a conference and telling them that they should have someone speak about Y2K, the year 2000 problem, didn't make any sense. They'd never heard of it, and they don't want to pay for something they haven't heard about. So I went out and sold a sponsor. In the Doomsday 2000 article, I had spoken to an organization called Data Dimensions, in particular Larry Martin, who was the head of the organization at the time. And we arranged a deal. And this is important, and the way it's set up is critically important. They would sponsor 20 speaking engagements, not at my full fee, enough to pay my flight, hotel, and a little bit of pocket money. But they had a constraint. They wouldn't pay for any conference. If I told them I want to go to a conference and speak to a thousand plumbers, their answer was, no, we're not interested. Why were they doing this? Well, they want to create awareness of the problem, too, because they were getting into the business of selling tools. So I would present to them a proposal each time I wanted to tap into those funds. And it had to be relevant to the industry and to the problem. I could speak at a PMI event with 150 people. I couldn't speak to a PMI event with 15 people, for example. My constraints were even worse. My constraints were as follows. I would never mention them from the stage. I wouldn't mention their product. I wouldn't tell anybody what they're doing. And this is the first time I've told anybody any of this, except sometimes for the conference organizers who said, we can't pay you. And I'd come back and say, well, I have a sponsor, and uh, they might want to be mentioned during your introduction, but not mine. I won't be mentioning it from stage. And that's how we got the leg up. That's how we got started in promoting Y2K as an issue that needed to be solved. We had to prime the pump. Now, when I'm communicating, what, what am I going to communicate? Well, in any crisis, what you need to do is communicate the simplest message possible. And the message I settled on and the one I spoke about for close on 10 years, more than 2,000 media interviews, was simple. We have a problem. It needs fixing. I repeated that so many times that I became sick and tired of the sound of my own voice. If we needed something else, and with a little bit of serendipity, it actually came around. Some of you are curious as to where the term Y2K came from. Well, the image I've just posted is the email. It was sent out on June the 12th, 1995, at 11.31 by a Mr. David Eddy. He was responding to the following question by reading most of the Y2K, sorry, by reading most of the year 2000 responses. It appears that the big difficulty we are all encountering is not defining a new date storage algorithm, but finding the time, money, and resources to change the hundreds, thousands of programs, database storage parameters, file definitions, etc., in existing systems. David Eddy responded as follows. Right. Whether or not folks to decide to expand everything from YY to YYYY or do some fancy bit twiddling in place or whatever is of little concern, I think. People will, as always, choose a bewildering array of manners to fix their situations. The major problem will be finding the resources. Companies simply don't have a lot of excess resources sitting around. Business, tax law changes, responding to competitive changes, opening new markets, etc., won't stop while we take four years out to fix Y2K issues. First time it was ever mentioned. How shops go about this resource allocation decision will indeed be interesting. I'm sure some of you will try to sell a business only to find no takers. David. That 
was an important little email because it branded the problem very, very simply. Y2K. You can see the progression too. Uh, he first mentioned it as Y2000, and then in the next paragraph drops it down to Y2K. I think that was one of the better little serendipitous things that occurred during the discussions. We were able to brand it, create a new term, a term that raised questions anytime anyone heard about it, and started the conversation. So the message is, we have a problem. It needs fixing. Ideally, in a crisis situation, what you need to do is have a single source of information. Everything should be coming from one source. That's impossible, of course. It's the ideal situation. If it's coming from a single source, then it doesn't get muddled. There can be an agreement as to what we're going to say. It needs to be a consistent message. It has to be independent of vendors. It has to be fact-based and as accurate as possible at all times. To that end, what we did during this Y2K as a Change project, we set up uh, the, the first central source of information. And it was the central site, year2000.com. This was our attempt to say, if you want year 2000 information, go here. It wasn't called y2k.com. Why? Because the term hadn't been invented. David Eddy hadn't had a conversation with the, uh, the listserv yet at that point. The other thing we set up was the listserv. We had 8,000 contributors at one point. We had five, 600 emails a day asking questions like the one you just heard and the responses. And we had 8,000 people contributing on a regular basis. So much so that at the end, we had to get a full-time person on board. We had to start charging for the listserv. That dropped the subscribers down to about 2,000 people. And we were still getting four, five, 600 emails every single day. They were moderated at that point. This fed into Cotter's model again. Cotter's model, remember, was create urgency, build a core coalition, form a strategic vision, get everybody on board, remove barriers, sustain acceleration, and set the change in stone. By setting up the central site and putting up the listserv, what we were doing was we were tapping into the top four points, create urgency. Why would we have a site if it wasn't urgent? Create a core coalition. These were the 8,000 people on the contributors list. Form a strategic vision. That was driven by the year2000.com site. And getting everybody on board, the year2000.com site was getting the entire world on board. So this is how we were addressing it as a change issue. We we're tapping into these change process models at every step along the way. One of the concepts in communication is that you have to be an honest broker. You have to be someone that people can trust. Now, the way you become an honest broker and the reason you're doing it, well, you need to establish rapport. I cannot establish rapport with everybody out there if I'm a vendor, if I'm pushing a particular product. It doesn't work that way. Now, to be an honest broker, there's some concessions you have to make. I can hold no stocks in Y2K. Never did. I can't push products from the stage. Never did. I can't say that you have to go to this particular vendor or use this particular product for any reason. The moment I do that, I become a shill for an organization. I can't push vendors. I, can't, I have to be honest to a fault. And to give you an example of that, I can't allow my influence to be co-opted by anybody. In early 1999, we received an offer to buy the site. 
to buy the year2000.com site from us. The offer was seven digits in cash and about the same in stock options. We refused. Why? Because what the site was going to do was sell survivalist gear, bunkers, gold, everything to prep for the end of the world as we know it. We couldn't do that. And it was actually an easy decision. Could I have used the money? Sure. Anyone would like that type of money. But it was easy to do for the simple reason that that's not what we were about. We were about solving the problem. So selling the site would have not made me an honest broker. It would have violated that. It would have made me uh, just a shill for whatever reason. And we would have lost all credibility. One of the most useful concepts in communicating change is Everett Rogers' adoption curve. This is the one where he talks about innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, and laggards. And this drove the conversation. Even if someone was talking about Y2K and wasn't aware of this particular model, the conversation changed as different groups of people got on board this. Now, I'll go through it. The innovators is the 2.4% of the bell curve. That is part of the adoption curve by Everett Rogers. The innovators doesn't relate to a bunch of people per se. It relates to the second deviation on the bell curve. That's how it's defined. He then looked at the innovators and said, okay, this particular part of the bell curve, what do they have in common? And he analyzed with surveys and studies and all that other good stuff. And he came up with the following. They are venturesome. In other words, they are willing to try new things. They're not overly concerned about being incorrect. They will go out and see if there's an issue with the expectation that it might be true, it might be not, but they will go out and test. They will go out and see if the change being proposed is a valid change. They also do something else. They're willing to speak to other innovators, regardless of geographical location. In other words, silos they ignore. You find this all over the internet. You will find experts in a particular field that don't just talk to their own organization, not to their own silo, but will speak to anybody on the planet. Innovators were the ones that we tapped into when we have 8,000 people in that listserv. These were the ones who were out there demonstrating that this was real. How did we access them? How did we get information that, to them? Well, the, the only means that we really had was the listserv after we'd done this, industry print media. We could write articles. We could publish stuff in their publications that they and they alone would read. This is how we got hold of them. The next group to come along are the early adopters. They make up about 13.5% of that adoption curve. They are deemed to be respectable. They're not venturesome. They are less willing to be wrong, but they do take their lead from the innovators. They have opinion leadership. In other words, they are influencers within their silos. They tend to worry about their silo and not everybody else. They are inward looking to their organizations. But they are absolutely crucial to get the curve moving. We contacted them. We communicated to them via the mainstream media, also via conferences. The first group weren't involved in the conferences so much at the very beginning. 
When the conferences started up, there was enough of a market for organizations to make a profit running a conference. These people would be attending. The early adopters and the innovators would be attending those conferences. And that's how we got a lot of the information out there. The next group is really important, early majority. They make up 35%. They're very deliberate. Everett Rogers defines them as being followers, not leaders. Now, what he means by that is that they are following the lead of the innovators and the early adopters. They are, they're not the ones out there deciding to start things, but they are taking the advice of the opinion leaders, the, in, the early adopters that we just spoke about. They are following their lead. They are basically being pushed into acceptance, and they are made up of really powerful people. In particular, government task forces were the early majority. They were the ones who really got the ball rolling and started to make it easier for everybody else to get on board. One of the first things that the U.S. task force did was the anti-lawsuit legislation, where people were different industries were allowed to collaborate with each other uh, against the antitrust uh, laws and everything else, where they would not be sued for anything they said about Y2K. This enabled collaboration at the highest levels. If not for that, then the late majority wouldn't have gotten involved. We used more media. This is the point where the media just went through the roof, 1998, 1999. We were on television, TV, radio, all the time, print media was going nuts. Magazines were being started just to focus on Y2K. And there was also another little event that happened. During this point, this would be in about 1998, 1999 timeframe, someone decided that they would patent a particular solution that was being used. This was the windowing solution. I'd mentioned that in earlier episodes of this. They decided that they would patent this and that they would try and charge people for using this idea. The year2000.com website and the listserv joined forces, and what we did was we collected what is called prior art. We collected all instances of where windowing was used in programs going back as far as the 1970s, which basically killed the patent. Uh, it never went to court or anything, but we had a body of work uh, stored at year2000.com that anybody could look at. We had all the receipts that this thing had been used long, long before the patent was acquired. Now, that fed into something particular from Cotter's model. Cotter's model has something called remove barriers. Both the anti-lawsuit legislation and the prior art project were examples of we were consciously removing barriers from the adoption of Y2K practices. We made it easier for people to move forward, and it also helped sustain the acceleration. A lawsuit for the windowing would have slowed projects down worldwide. By putting the, uh, the documentation together, we avoided that. Late majority was interesting as well. Late majority are defined as being very skeptical. They're 35% of the curve. They only get on board a change, in this particular case, accepting that Y2K was an issue, when they, there is an economic necessity to do it. There had to be social pressures. And they don't get on board until the majority on board. They are 
obstinate, to say the least, but they are accessible. Uh, we got their attention by changing the language and doing some other projects. We had a project called the Damocles Project. Now, if you know the term, it's the Sword of Damocles. And there were organizations that were announcing that they had done everything they needed to do, but we knew for a fact that they had not. In other words, it was basically public relations that they were trying to do. They were putting a spin on their projects. So we sent out a word to the 8,000 people on the mail list and basically said, if you have evidence that your organization has said that everything is correct, but you know for a fact that it hasn't, send us the receipts. We will hold them in trust until after. But the Damocles project was announced. We never announced who had put stuff into the bin, into trust with us. But the it was this sword hanging over everybody's head. And once you have a evidence that you're lying to the public, it makes it real interesting if there should be a Y2K problem. And you've said that there wouldn't be a Y2K problem, but we have proof that you hadn't done the jobs. We got the attention of the lawyers. And once you get the attention of the lawyers, you get the attention of the board. Once you get the attention of the board, they start making things happen for a particular reason. There was also a peculiar incidence where the New York Stock Exchange contacted us and they wanted to create a stock index of year 2000 stocks, year 2000.com type stocks. Remember, I held no stocks. I never held any stocks in Y2K. They wanted to use my name. Now, I'm sure that a good marketer would have been able to extract a fee for that. I wasn't interested. I gave them permission. No fee was assigned to me for using my name as the Y2K, the, sorry, the Diager stock index. Why didn't I take a fee? Well, I didn't want to slow things down. I didn't need the money. The mortgage was being paid. And I wanted it out there. Why? Well, if there's a Diaga stock index for the Y2K stuff, that gets the attention of the investors. And if the investors are getting involved, they don't just invest. They ask questions of the board. They ask questions of organizations. And if they're asking questions, it creates more awareness at a level, the, C, the executive level in organizations that we might not have been able to get before. So when they approached us to say, can we use your name? My answer was swift and immediate, yes, because it fulfilled a different need. It allowed us to communicate in a different way to a different group of people that may not have been paying attention to Y2K up until that happened. A uh, little sidebar on that index, it outperformed the Dow for as long as it, was, as it was active. And no, I never bought into it. We started to change the language in presentations and in articles being written and in interviews with the media. We started to use terms like fiduciary responsibilities. That was being directed directly to the C-level executives and board members. They have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure their organizations are healthy. What that means is that they are personally responsible if they are making statements contrary to the final outcome. That got their attention. That got some of the late, almost laggards moving. This is all directed at the late majority. The key here, here is that the conversation, the communication strategy is changing from one group to another 
as we move through the adoption curve. Cotter, again, all of this ties into Cotter. Create urgency, build a core coalition, form a strategic vision, get everybody on board, remove the barriers, sustain acceleration. That is, it. That is what we're doing here. And we're also doing the last one. We're setting the change in stone. Once these things get to the late majority, the Y2K problem has almost been solved. It's been solved to the extent that people are working on it. Remember the early message, we have a problem, we need to fix it. When we're getting to the late majority, people have recognized that there is a problem and that we're working on it. And that's, we're gonna to have to change, we're gonna to have to change the tone in a few minutes. Laggards, well, these are the ones, these are 16% of the group. They lag far behind in awareness. And what did we do special to get the laggards on board? Nothing. If they hadn't paid attention by then, there wasn't anything we were going to be able to do to get them moving ahead. There was no special activities for the laggards. While we're communicating, while we're communicating to everybody out there, we're conscious, at least I'm conscious of, a Marshall McLuhan quote, that the medium is the message. What it means is that how you're communicating your message is definitely affected by the technology being used for a variety of reasons. The most powerful way to communicate in some respects is the written message, the written article. It's a monolithic piece. In other words, if I write a thousand word article, it's a thousand word article. And you can't really pull out a quote and say, well, you know, this is what the article says. No, the whole thing is there. It's nuanced. It can be very, very detailed. It's constant, it's content heavy and it's permanent. One of the beauties about the internet that is that once it's there, it's there forever. Anyone who wants to go back and read all of the things that were written, go to the internet. In particular, go to the Wayback Machine and search for year2000.com. Every article that we ever posted on that website, including the Damocles Project and a couple of other things which I'll mention soon, are all there. The articles we wrote are there. And if you can find anything where we're speaking out of turn, by all means, let me know. Not that I can change it, but it'd be nice to know that we got it wrong somewhere. We vetted the articles. There were hundreds of articles that we posted there. They were all fact-checked. There was no fake news. There were no anecdotes that weren't backed up by facts. Uh, you're allowed to put emotion and passion into your articles. They can be structured. You're allowed to use visuals. We did from time to time. The linearity of the written word can be flexed with the structure of the article. The best way to communicate for technical issues has always been the articles, and you also have full control over it. But there's a problem. Not everybody reads the articles. You have to rely on other means. The most powerful way to communicate, to convince someone, is with a talk, with a presentation, like the one you're hearing. But there's a problem with the spoken word. It's ephemeral. You, you will not remember every word that I've said in this presentation two hours from now. You might remember key messages. That's the hope. The key message in every presentation was, we have a problem. It needs fixing. How I communicated, how we communicated changed from presentation to presentation, the amount of passion we put in. But 
it's powerful. It can convince you, but it's not long-lasting. We could not have fixed Y2K if we had just relied on the spoken word. That would not have succeeded. We needed everything else that we could bring to the table. There were other we, ways of getting the message out. Um, and I'm going to get into some of the, the difficulties with each one of these just to fill in the blanks. Live radio interviews are great, but you don't have control over the message because you don't have control over the questions that you're going to be asked. Also, the audience belongs to the host, not to you. You're a guest. You can't have long, detailed explanations. They have to be sound bites because of the nature of radio. You can't put up a visual. The sound bites have to match the show. If you're doing a recorded radio, it's even worse. Everything that I've just said is true for recorded radio, and you add on something else. You have no control over how you're going to be representative, uh, represented. You could be taken out of context. I've had instances where the question asked during the recording is not the question they are using during the transmission of the recording. In other words, they swap out their question for something else, which makes your answer sound weirder. The, speaking, the hint is to speak in sound bites, very short messaging. Don't speak long. If you speak too long, they're going to trim it down. TV is different. Live TV, great. It's going to be a 30-second, 40-second spot. You have to speak in sound bites. You don't have full control. You don't have control over the questions. You don't have control over the lighting that they use. I did one presentation where I was lit from underneath. So if you ever saw a vampire movie where the face is all highlighted very differently, then that's how I looked. Uh, media TV is very, very difficult, and it's not what you're seeing when you're looking at it. Uh, TV recorded is, is even different. Uh, it's even more difficult, again, because they can clip and cut and do what they need. They can change the background. They can photograph backgrounds that don't really work for you. Uh, the best one for you is, is, is writing to communicate. If you're communicating change in your organization, you're writing articles, you're writing pieces, you're writing newsletters. Print media is different. Uh, now you're speaking to someone on the phone, you're being quoted, and you're being misquoted. The number of times I was quoted correctly, precisely, I could count on one hand. Most of the time, you're quoted not exactly the way you want to be quoted. And this was all just the reality of communicating a message in a time of crisis. One of the things that I learned is that, basically from the Rosetta Stone, is you have to communicate the same message many different ways, using different stories, different approaches. But the core message has to stay the same. If someone hears three different stories from you, but they're all saying basically the same thing. The stories are different, but the, the basic message is the same. Then the basic message gets through, and the details of the story are forgotten. Uh, absolutely important in communication. Repetition is key. And the more you can repeat yourself, as I'm doing right now as an exercise, the better. And then it has to change. 
Once you've gotten the late majority on board any change initiative, the tone has to change. Why and I speak about the seven questions of change? One of the key components right at the end is signposts. We have to communicate that what we've been doing has worked. And you need to communicate that in many different ways. In 1998, we started to put together the groundwork for how the conversation would change in 1999 and towards the end of 1998. One of the articles that I had in mind was going to be entitled Doomsday Avoided, which was hearkened back to the first article, which was Doomsday 2000. This was written in March of 1999. It was posted on the year2000.com website, and it got worldwide coverage. It also generated death threats. When you start changing the tone, when you start saying that the problem has been solved, you get two different types of responses. First response is, how dare you say the problem has been avoided? It is still active. It's still a threat. That's one. And the other response you get is, how dare you say it's avoided? You've been scaring the life out of us for the last three or four years, and now you're saying we don't have to worry. You overhyped it. You hear this when weather forecasters are warning you of the Category 5 hurricane bearing down on Orlando, and then it turns into a Category 3, and it wasn't as bad as they thought, and the response is, why did you terrify us so much? We're not going to believe you in future. There's no way to avoid that. I've stayed away from making any parallels to what's going on today all around us. If you're listening to this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But the parallels are there. And the same types of responses are going to occur. That sooner or later, the story has to change if you've succeeded in making a change. And in Y2K, we succeeded. When I wrote Doomsday Avoided, I was absolutely convinced that we had taken care of it. The way I phrased it was that we had broken the back of Y2K, that there would still be problems, but there would be nothing major. That actually came to pass. That's exactly what happened, as predicted. We had another project, similar but different, from the Damocles project. The Damocles was a threat. Either get your act in gear or the lawyers would be out there. Promises kept was the other, the flip side of that. This was a file an archive on the year2000.com website, where organizations who had done the job and delivered could put up an announcement that we, Acme Company, are now Y2K compliant. This is what we did. This is how we took care of it. This is the money we spent. This is where we are right now. And we had dozens upon dozens of organizations put a press release into that area that was there for the media to look at, or anybody to look at that wanted to. So we put that up. Another way to communicate that we had taken care of Y2K is that in towards the end of 1999, we put the site up for auction. The year2000.com site was up on auction on eBay. Now remember, earlier I said we had been offered money for the site. We had been offered seven digits in cash and about seven digits worth of stock options. We refused. Why? because they would have been selling survivalist gear, which would have been the wrong message that we wanted to send. So we put up the site for auction up on eBay, 
very publicly. We announced that it was up for sale. And what we were communicating was that Y2K was over, that Peter de Auger and the site had no more use in Y2K, that we had passed our expiry date. We, don't, we didn't need it anymore. And whether or not you thought I was a shyster or whether I was serious, the message was still the same. Peter Diago is getting out of Y2K. It must be done. The story didn't end up exactly the way we wanted to. It would have been nice to have sold it, but it didn't happen. We had some scammers get on, trolls. This was the internet, remember? And I think we received a... Uh, we received an offer of about $2 million, and I was told when I was on the plane flying to Heathrow that night, I think I was over Gander at the stroke of midnight, we received a message that the site had sold $2 million. I didn't believe a word of it, because I'd been watching the bids, and the bids didn't move the way a normal auction would move. And I said it was fake. Uh, a couple of years later, my son is watching Bill's, uh, Ben Stein's Money, a quiz show on TV. And one of the questions was, which site sold for $2 million, or whatever the number was, I can't remember exactly, which site sold for $2 million? And the correct answer, according to Ben Stein, was the Y2K, the year2000.com site. My son looked at me and said, Dad, where's the money? Uh, there was no sale. It never got sold. And... Uh, that that's the end of it. That's what that's all she wrote. So, but it was put up for sale, not to sell it, but to communicate that we didn't need it anymore. We'd also done some other stuff. We'd done this. We'd started doing this in 1998 and 1999 to communicate that, you know, let's re let's relieve the stress. Let's get rid of some of the stress that we'd caused over the years and create a limerick contest. We had several hundred. Uh, I actually have them on file someday, somewhere. Maybe someday I'll put them into a book and make it available to folks. We had Y2K limericks. We had a contest and we gave out money. There were cash prizes for this. And the people who got involved were the people on the listserv. So we had a bit of fun with that. We also had a humor contest. Uh, various types of cartoons and things were drawn and sent in, and that was cash money as well. And again, that was to communicate that we'd, we'd taken care of this. We could stop being so serious. We could have a bit of fun. Uh, we'd come through a long project, time to celebrate. This was our way of communicating that Y2K had been beaten. And I put a book out. The book was developed in 1998. It was a financial disaster. But it was a roaring success. Once again, the success came from the fact that we were communicating that Peter Diager no longer takes this seriously anymore, that this has been taken care of. It is time to have a laugh and a giggle at how stupid we were throughout the entire Y2K event. It was a stupid problem from the beginning. It should never have occurred. And there is humor in that. And if we can't laugh at ourselves when we go through these crises, then there's no hope for us. All of this was driven by everything I knew about change management. The five models I used that belonged to other people were the Cotter model, the Kubler-Ross grief cycle, Everett Rogers' Diffusion of Innovations book, 
the ADCAR model was used. So was Virginia Satir. And so was my own work, my own research over the years. It was a change project from my perspective. My goal was today was to provide some background as to how a change project of this nature is actually facilitated. I hope you found it useful. You want to support this, not just access it, but support the effort that we're going through, then head over to www.vimeo.com, V-I-M-E-O.com, slash on demand, slash Y2K. There's a, pro, a promo code that you can use, 70% discount. It's got limited usage, so get in first. Y2K Diager, D-E-J-A-G-E-R. This has been the seventh episode of Y2K in Autobiography. You can contact me at pdager, P-D-E-J-A-G-E-R, at technobility, T-E-C-H-N-O-B-I-L-I-T-Y dot com. The next episode, I have no idea. This uh, lockdown has distracted me somewhat. It'll be out in about two weeks. I'm going to be a little, give myself a little bit of a break on that, but it'll be out in about two weeks, and it'll be on some other issue related to Y2K. If you were involved in Y2K and you would like to be a part of the interview series, then by all means, contact me, let me know, and wish you all the best. Be good, be safe, and wash your filthy hands. <laughs> <laughs>